Good morning. Good to see everybody this morning and to have a little bit more room to spread out. Although as cold as it is, we probably wish we were back in the black box, a little tighter, huh? A little body heat. How's everybody this morning? Good, 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 good. If you are visiting with us this morning for the first time, a special welcome to you. Um, we like to give God praise for you. So if you're visiting for the first time, we won't embarrass you and ask you to speak in front of all these people, but we do want to give God praise. We just stand where you are if you're a first-time visitor with us this morning. Amen. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. But well, we want to invite you to um, make yourself right at home and we'll invite you to stay around after the service. Let us get to know you a little bit uh, by name. There should be the greeters table out back and um, saints milling around church family. If you uh, take note of these folks, be sure to greet them uh, and welcome them in the name of the Lord this morning. Um, if you need a Bible this morning, let me invite you to, you need a minute? Okay. If you need a Bible this morning, we got one Bible. Okay. We got one Bible. So somebody other than Tasha. If you need a Bible this morning, raise your hand. We'd be happy to bring you. I feel like Chris Rock. What real? Sorry. Date myself. I date myself. Somebody know. Somebody know. Okay. Amen. Good, good, good. Y'all pray for me this morning. Pray for me this morning. All right. Well, let's take care of our homework assignment this morning. We are memorizing the book of First Timothy. Uh, we're almost there, y'all. We're in chapter 5, and uh, last week we were preaching through verses 11 to 16. So that was our scripture memory uh, for this morning, 1 Timothy 5, 11 to 16. Is there anybody who wants to recite that for us this morning? Anybody want to recite 1 Timothy 5, 11 to 16? Okay, that's all right. That's all right. Next week, we'll be focused on our text for this morning, verses 17 and 18. I know y'all like it when it's just two verses, right? So next week now, let's, let's memorize verses 17 and 18, uh, and let's keep working on it. And, and whatever little bit you get in your heart, right, that matters, right? So don't feel bad. Don't beat yourself up. Don't turn this into a legalism, right? If you don't get the whole section down or if you don't have it perfectly, every little bit of God's heart or God's word in our heart is seed. And that seed will germinate and sprout and bear fruit. Amen? Amen. Praise God. And I just saw Brother Durst this morning. Brother, welcome this morning. We've been praying for you and the family. So good to see you this morning, brother. Amen. Let's have a word of prayer. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name, great God and Father. For you have done all things well. Your glory fills the earth, and your love is better than life. We give you praise, for you have given Jesus, your son, to save us from our sin and the judgment to come, and to make us your own children. We give you praise, for in your power you raised him from the dead, so that everyone who has hope in him, who believes in him, We'll have this same experience of resurrection and to eternal life. We'll give you thanks, Lord, that eye has not seen, ear has not heard what you have planned for us. Such great things of matchless glory. And we thank you that you're a God who has not done something 2,000 years ago to save us and, and has left us for 2,000 years or however many years more until you come to get us, but you are God who's with us, never leaving us, never forsaking us. And you're God who speaks to us by your word. And so we pray this morning, Father, speak to us this morning. Holy Spirit, illumine our understanding. Show us your way, mark the path, and give us faith and grace to follow it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. Well, beloved, turning your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. And as you turn there, let me just say a few words of, of review uh, as to why we're in this book and thinking about it in this time. As you know, 1 Timothy is one of two letters written by the Apostle Paul to a young man, a young pastor named Timothy. Timothy had traveled with Paul and studied with Paul, learned how to be a pastor from Paul. 
And Paul had this habit of doing ministry in teams. He's always traveling with a couple of other people. They go to cities, they, they evangelize and lead people to faith in Jesus, and then they establish a church there. And very often, once the church is kind of established, the Apostle Paul will move on to the next city, but he'll leave part of his team there to continue to lead that church. That's what's happened in this city called Ephesus. Timothy was there pastoring. Paul had left him there to, to lead and to shepherd that church. And yet Timothy's a young pastor, and as tradition has it, probably a timid pastor. And so Paul has written to him in this letter to give him instructions for how the church should operate, how the household of God, how the people of God should live together and worship together and serve together. And so this is why we come to this book. After a couple of years of, of not being able to get together, of not being able to sing together, not being able to serve together in the ways that we normally would, we're trying to sort of shake off the dust, as it were, remind ourselves of some things, go back to the book, go back to the basics, that we might be the church of God that, that God wants us to be. And so we've titled this uh, sermon series, Instructions for the Church, because that's precisely what we find in this book. And in chapter five, we've come to some instructions about how the family of God is meant to treat one another. You let your eyes go back up to chapter five, verses one and two. Paul there talks about different genders and different generations in the church. He says that we're to treat older men as fathers, older women as mothers, younger men as brothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Then he switches over to a group of people that we don't often talk about. Uh, today. This is why I'm glad God's word is sit down in print and, and it's not up to the preacher to bring you wisdom. We just bring it from God's word. He will remind us sometimes of things that we haven't thought about. So in verse three, he goes to widows and he begins to talk about the, the church's responsibility to care for widows who are truly widows. And in the course of that, he starts to talk about the family's responsibility to care for its own members. And so he defines a widow as someone who is over 60, who obviously has lost their spouse, who has no children, no other family, is all alone, and so is dependent upon God and dependent upon the church. Those widows, the church has a responsibility to care for, to put them on the list of widows, and to honor them by providing for them. Other widows who have families, who have sons and daughters and things of that sort, particularly of, of working age, well, they are meant to receive care from their own family. The family is to care for them, as verse 16 says, I believe, um, so that the church would not be burdened. The church can care for those who are truly in need. And the family is to care for them, verse 8, so that they would demonstrate the genuineness of their faith. Because someone who does not care for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And so genuine faith is seen through genuine care for our families. If we're not going to be Christians at home, we're not going to be Christians anywhere. And so Paul was explaining this responsibility for how the church as the family of God relates to the natural family and how it is we are meant to grow both the natural family and the spiritual family in a proper way. Now, hanging over this chapter, as we've been saying, is this picture, this idea of the church as a family. And if you don't say one word uh, from this chapter about how the family is supposed to treat each other, it's that word honor. We see it in the way that we respect each other as elders or respect each other as siblings. We see it used there explicitly in verse 3. And that idea is going to come again now in verse 17 when Paul shifts to talk about how the church takes, for, takes care of another type of member of the family. And that's the pastors. That's the elders of the church. How many of you know that pastors are people who not only are called to care for God's people, but also need the care of God's people? See, we sheep too. We're just, we're just members too. Uh, we have a particular role in the family, but we need the family as much as you need the family. We need the church as much as you need the church. And in this sermon here, we're going to talk about the church's responsibility to care for pastors. Now, here's another topic that your pastor probably would never teach on if he didn't just preach straight through the Bible and if God didn't put it in his word. Okay, so let me go ahead. True confession so I can get it out my heart and so I can preach with some freedom. I hate talking about this. 
because I don't want to be associated with pastors who milk the flock, who fleece the flock, who, who really do seem to be more about money than they are about the gospel. That ain't us here, okay? And yet, this is important stuff because God put it in his word, okay? So that's true confession. I'm going to pray again, then I'm going to preach, all right? All right, here we go. Father, help us. <laughs> help us to hear with freedom. Help us to preach with freedom. Help us to receive your word. Uh, Lord, I pray, edit this sermon right now. Lord, edit, edit what's said so that um, your people get the gold and not the dross. So your people get the wheat and not the shaft. Uh, I pray, O oh Lord, that we would be built up in the faith and help to walk in a manner worthy of your gospel. Feed us by your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. This is God's word. The Lord says there, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. We'll read it again. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So we're going to organize our thoughts really in two points here, one for each verse. The first point very simply is this. Give double honor for excellent work. Give double honor for excellent work. That's the instruction. The second point is verse 18, which is really the, the why, the, the, the ground clause, the reason. And it's very simply this, that faithful ministers of the word are worthy. The faithful ministers of the word are worthy. So point number one, give double honor for excellent work. You see it right there in verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now, we're just going to unpack this sentence um, by asking four very simple questions. The first question is this, who are these elders? Well, we're not here to be interested, be tempted to think in a chapter that starts off by describing the church as a family and talking about older men and older women, it'd be easy to think that these elders are the older members of the church. But in fact, that's not how the Bible is using that term. Uh, this term elder here is the same term that you see back in chapter 3, verse 1, when it says this is a trustworthy saying, if anyone aspires to the, to the task or the office of an overseer. An overseer, an elder, a bishop, a pastor, are all words used interchangeably for the same thing, for what we call the office of pastors. So here now, he's thinking about pastors in the local church, and they're, they're called elders, probably because of um, Christianity's roots in Judaism. So that in, in, in Old Testament Judaism, in, in the time of Christ, to have a synagogue in a particular town, you need a certain number of elders, older Jewish men, in order to sort of incorporate that as a synagogue. So Paul is taking that language, taking that idea, and he's applying it here now to pastors. So that's, that's who's in view here. And notice what he says. Part of the pastor's job is to rule, which brings us to our second question. What does he mean? by rule well. Now, rule does not mean that pastors get to be little power-hungry dictators bossing everybody around. We, we know that because of what the Lord Jesus himself says in Mark chapter 10, verses 42 and 43. If you want to, there, you can turn there with me or write that down. Mark 10, verses 42 and 43. Jesus says this. He called them to him, his disciples, and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. So the, the Gentiles would be a word used for all the people groups who were not Israelites, who were seen as unbelievers. So he's talking about the world. He's talking about from a Jewish perspective, secular folk. He says, now the, the leaders, the rulers of the Gentile, that there's something peculiar. There's something particular about their leadership philosophy. They lorded over people, right? They domineer. He says, now, you know that that's true of the Gentiles, and their great ones exercise authority over them. So for leadership in sort of a, an unbelieving, secular, Gentile world, leadership was about power. Leadership was about control. Then he says in verse 43, very simply, but 
it shall not be so among you. So Christian leadership is something other than worldly leadership. Christian rule is something other than worldly rule, which centers on control and power and authority. We know this is not what Paul means when he says rule, because this Paul who says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, but we work with you for your joy so you stand firm in the faith. Paul's very clear. He's using this word rule in 1 Timothy, but he's very clear in other parts of his writing that, that he's not talking about that kind of domineering rule. So what it does not mean that the church and Christians belong to pastors to control and subjugate in any way. Well, what does it mean? Well, something like this. Rule here means to lead by serving the way Jesus did. It means to lead by serving the way Jesus did. So if we're still in Mark chapter 10. Notice what Jesus goes on to say there. He says now, but who Of all, verse 45, for even the Son of Man, talking about himself, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying to his followers, now when it comes to leadership, you're not to lead the way unbelievers lead in this sort of autocratic, power-hungry, oppressive way. No, 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 no. You are to lead by serving. If you really want to be a great leader, be a great servant. And then he gives them the reason why at the end there. He says, because not even I came to lead that way. And sit on that for a minute. The Lord of glory, the Son of God, true God from true God, took upon himself human flesh, and came into the world that he created and that he owned, had every right to rule it purely in authority. But instead, made himself a servant, laid down his life, served the very creation that would crucify him to redeem it. And he says, this now is the pattern of Christian leadership. So ruling in the Christian leadership sense is always cross-shaped. It's always sacrificial. It always requires the death of the ruler, the death of the leader, if it's going to look the way that Jesus led and Jesus served. If you're here this morning, I think at this point, forget about Christian leadership and think about this Jesus. If you're here this morning, I, I, I wonder if you're stunned by the idea that the one God and creator would come into his creation to serve you. Now, don't get it twisted, not because you're great. None of us are. Not, not because you're so good and so wonderful that even God would serve you. That, that's idolatry. That's self-worship on a crazy level. No, 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 no. He came into the world, humbled himself, and served you because you and I were in trouble. Because, because of our sin, we deserve to be judged by God forever. Because of our sin, we, we had actually angered God. And because of our sin, and we, we couldn't undo our sin, we could not unring that bell, we had been separated from God, and there was no way back. No way back to God. No way back to his love. No way back to his forgiveness, except the Son of God came into the world to serve us in just that way, to lay down his life as a ransom, as a payment, 
to redeem us, to buy us back from slavery to sin, to buy us back from the judgment we deserve, to buy us back from an eternal hell. We needed a savior. And Jesus is that savior. He has come so that you, through his service on the cross, his death on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins and my sins, and so that you, through his resurrection, through his defeat of the grave, through his defeat of Satan, through his defeat of sin, so that you and I might be victorious in him over the grave, over death, over Satan, over sin. He has come so that we would have a new life, an eternal life, and live with God forever in God's love. It is for you, beloved, to receive that. To put your faith in Jesus as the only Savior, the only God who would be so humble as to serve his people a people who did not deserve it so that they might be new and might live forever with him. If you're here this morning, you're not yet a Christian. That's the most important thing for you to understand. It's the most important thing for you to believe. It's the belief that will change your life now and eternally. It's the belief that will change your relationship from God, with God, from sinner in danger of his judgment to son or daughter adopted into his family. Believe on Jesus. Trust in him. Follow him in faith. If you'd like to know more about what that means and how to do that, talk with me after the service. Talk to the Christian friend that brought you. Talk to someone who looks like they know what they're doing with their Bibles. Uh, if you discover that they don't, then come to the rest of us. But don't leave without meeting and knowing this Jesus. And beloved, as a church, we are to look for pastors, expect of pastors that they would lead this way in this sacrificial, self-giving, cross-shaped, Jesus-like way. And the text here says, now, what, what do you do? How do you treat that kind of pastor? Well, it says you should consider them worthy of double honor. What does that mean? What does double honor mean? As we saw with the section on widows, but also to compensate, to financially pay. So this word honor has uh, sort of a double meaning there. So look back at 1 Timothy 5, verses 3 and 4. Uh, there, Paul writes, honor widows who are truly widows. What does that honor look like? Verse 4, if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. We jump down to verse 16, it becomes even clearer. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So in the context, to honor involves making a return to or paying back. And it involves caring for someone. So verses 17 and 18 apply that same idea to pastors who serve well. They are to be honored in the sense of respect for their work, but also in the sense of caring for them and making a return to them. So when the text says double honor, it suggests that those who are in vocational ministry should not just be paid, but paid well. Again, this same word is used uh, with the idea of payment in mind uh, in secular Greek literature at the time. Uh, so it's, it has the idea of a kind of stipend or an, an honorarium. It's, it's used of physicians and doctors in the ancient Greek world. So, so devil honor could refer to paying pastors better than you pay doctors and lawyers. Right? But it seems more likely, again, that this double honor is both the respect and the good pay. As John Stott puts it, it's both honor and honorarium. So let me make something kind of obvious here. I don't think we have a problem with this. I just want to say it because I think it's less true in American church culture than certainly in other church cultures in other parts of the world, for the Caribbean, for example. Let me just say this. It's not wrong to honor pastors. It's 
right to honor pastors, according to this scripture in the Bible. It's, it's right to honor pastors, to show them respect and to care well for them. But now I want to put that in balance with something. It's also not wrong to guard against having that honor exploited. 1 Timothy 3, 3 says a pastor should not be a lover of money. A little bit later in the book, Paul will say that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, including the exploitation of God's people. So exploiting the, the church's honor of pastors for selfish gain really was a problem since the beginning of the New Testament church. Think for a minute about 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 20 and 21. In that chapter, Paul is defending his own ministry because there are some people who've come to Corinth claiming to be basically super apostles. And their whole thing was their ministry was so great, their preaching was so great, not only was it better than Paul's, but because it was so great, they should be given all of this stuff, right? And Paul is writing to them to say, look, you know, hey, okay, I'm not a super apostle, but remember, I'm the one who planted that church. Remember my ministry to you. And he contrasts his, his ministry as a true apostle against these false super apostles in verses 20 and 21 by saying this, for you, and this is, this is getting to the church being exploited, willingly exploited by these unfaithful men. He says this, for you bear it, you put up with it. If someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. You see the contrast and the sarcasm. These folks are making themselves out to be strong and making themselves out to be great, but they are abusing the sheep. And Paul is saying, if that's what strength looks like, yeah, we're too weak for that. We, we would never do that. We would never exploit you that way. So it's been right from the days of the New Testament for the church to be discerning enough and prayerful enough and honest enough in its conversation about the care of its pastors that it avoids being exploited. It avoids being taken advantage of. But at the same time, it's been right to care for those whose work is the ministry of the word. When I think of prosperity preachers using love and respect for the pastor, or justifications that have to do with how gifted they are. They use those kinds of things as justifications for why they should have a 25-bedroom mansion, you know, or, or why they should have private planes, right? or why they shouldn't greet people after service. You know, they got an anointing and they want the anointing to rub off. I'm like, that's ash, man. Put some lotion on, bro. Ain't anointing. But when I think about it, I mean, you, you've heard these kinds of rationalizations. You, when you hear about this rationalization, that's so much fake God talk to cover up a fundamental exploitation of God's people. So churches ought to be wise about that, not taken into that. And at the same time, churches ought to be genuinely uh, double honoring toward faithful pastors. Well, who does the Bible say this double honor should be paid to? Notice here, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So preaching and teaching is how some Christians earn their living. Uh, Paul would write 1 Corinthians 9, basically explaining why that was right, why that was okay, that, that men who labored in the word should also receive um, their income from that labor. It's a practice as old as the Old Testament temple. You remember the priests in the temple did not have jobs outside the temple. They were holy to the Lord. They were laid aside to the service of the Lord. And they got their, literally, they got their food in the act of the ministry itself, right? They didn't have an inheritance among the people. So they didn't have lands and plots and things of that sort because the Lord God was their inheritance. And their, their work in the ministry was to provide for their needs. So Paul here in saying this is, is tapping into something that God has always structured into his worship, whether it's the Old Testament temple or the New Testament church. And so this work leads to earning a living for some who are laid aside to it. And I think 
Paul is emphasizing, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching, because preaching and teaching are vital to the existence, the mission, and the spiritual health of the church. The church needs the ministry of the word, and the ministry of the word is worth paying double honor to get it. Without the ministry of the word, the church stops being the church. Remove the Bible from the pulpit, and you no longer have a church. You just have a collection of people with nothing else to do on Sunday morning. Having people dedicated to this book, to teach it and explain it and to apply it, is so vital that God has made provision for it in his word. And so he says, hey, an elder, any elder who serves uh, in the ministry of the word, um, or any, any elder, excuse me, who rules well, whether, whether they are like Baba Tunde, who's a lay elder, or whether they're like Thabiti, who, who's a main preacher and teacher, if they rule well, if they lead well, whether or not that's their role, they are afforded double honor. But now, especially if their work is preaching and teaching, we, we honor, we respect that, et cetera. Now, I'm, I'm happy to say that ARC shows double honor to its pastors, both those lay pastors and those paid pastors. I, I think compared to most churches, when I listen to pastors and talk to pastors or read sort of salary surveys and things of that sort, this church has always been faithful and generous and kind. I just want to pull up these statistics real quickly. Uh, at, these are a little bit dated now, 2011 or prior. But 90% of the pastors in, in one survey by the Schaefer Institute report that they work between 55 to 75 hours a week. 50% feel unable to meet the demands of the job. They feel just like the Apostle Paul when the Apostle Paul writes in, in Corinthians, who is sufficient for these things. 70% of pastors feel grossly underpaid. So seven out of the 10 pastors you know Set aside the famous people and the, and the internet pastors and, and, and the megachurch pastors. Set that, set that aside. Because most pastors ain't that, right? 90% of pastors, 95% of pastors ain't that. 95% of pastors are godly men working in unknown, unheard of churches with congregations of about 100 people on average, right? Your average pastor, 70% of them, 7 out of 10 of them, feel grossly underpaid for the type and the amount of work that they do. Pray for pastors. Pray for churches. Pray for churches to not have the attitude of one denomination that, that I won't name, who for a long time, their sort of spoken philosophy on paying, for, on, on sort of compensation for people in ministry was, if you keep them poor, you'll keep them humble. It's just not biblical. Just not biblical. And, and trust me, I know that probably in a room this size, seven out of 10 people in this room have had jobs where they didn't feel well paid. And worse than that, didn't feel well respected. And have had the thought, I could deal with the pay if I just felt valued. Anybody know that story? Well, pastors aren't exempt from that. Most pastors are experiencing the exact same thing. And so I, I think it, I find it all the more remarkable, um, all the more gracious of God and of this congregation um, that, that you care for us the way you do, that you provide for us the way you do, that you respect and, and, and honor us the way you do in brotherly love. Now, as pastors, we are far from perfect men, but we do work hard by God's grace, and we feel honored for the work. We praise God for that. Well, let me move on to our second point. That was the what? Faithful elders, show them double honor. Well, why? The why is there in verse 18. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Now, Paul here is quoting from two passages of scripture, which we'll unpack in just a moment. But notice the word pictures first. He, he's comparing the pastor's work to an ox treading out grain. An ox is a, a beast of burden, big, strong animal that you give heavy, hard work to. And he's comparing it to a laborer or a farmer, right? 
And so farmers, uh, any culture you go to, farmers, you don't know no lazy farmers, right? And farmers everywhere are, are hardworking folk, plowing the field, planting, waiting, etc. And so he's bringing these images forward again as another way of showing that this work in the word is hard work. So if you're here this morning, um, you can probably, and you think like this, you think a pastor only works on Sunday. Number one, you're not a member of this church. <laughs> But number two, that's just false. You may just see the pastor on Sunday, but if he's faithful, the week is filled with counseling. That's part of the ministry of the word. Teaching in various groups. That's part of the ministry of the word. Doing the work of evangelism, of an evangelist. That's part of the ministry of the word. Plotting to support and to send missionaries trying to find sheep who are wandering on the hillside somewhere. And we show up and we speak for 40 minutes or an hour. In one sense, this is the smallest part of our work. It's the work that's most visible to the whole church. And it's the work that shapes the whole church uh, at one time. But it is not all of the work. And so he brings forth these images to show that, that pastoral ministry is hard work. And this is why Paul, when he describes it, he reaches for words like, I labor and I toil. I strive with all of his power so mightily at work in me. You know, Paul just recognizes this is, this is actually beyond me. This is work that has to be done in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is work that has to be done supernaturally. It's so difficult. Let, let me Let me sort of press the difficulty home a little bit a little bit here by asking you a question. How easy is it to change your heart and mind? Think about yourself for a moment. How easy is it for anybody to change your heart and mind? But that's what you are actually desiring a pastor to do with God's word week to week. To come in here, open God's book, explain it, apply it in such a way that you grow. That your heart and your mind is changed. Is that easy? Just knowing yourself. Don't look at your neighbor. Is that easy? No. Right, so this is this is hard work, and Paul says, honor people who do this work um, doubly so. And then he he wants to root this in the Bible, as Paul often does. Right, this is not just a matter of his personal opinion. And so he quotes from these two texts here. Um, the first one is from Deuteronomy twenty-five, verse four. Deuteronomy twenty-five, verse four is the last verse in a long string of verses, about going back into chapter twenty-four, that have a heading that's called miscellaneous laws. In that section uh, of God's law, God addresses a number of things. He talks about uh, a new husband shouldn't go to war in the first year of marriage. He talks about not taking a millstone as collateral for a loan. Uh, he, he talks about not co-signing for a loan. Uh, there, there are laws in there about a whole range of things, uh, about workers being paid fairly, for example, uh, for their labors. Don't keep somebody's wages um, from them. So there's this long list of laws that, that seemingly have no connection. And the last one is the only one that talks about animals. It talks about livestock. The last one is the one that Paul quotes here uh, about an ox treading grain. And yet Paul sees in that an application to pastoral ministry. And to make this more clear, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, because he quotes this passage there as well in the middle of making the argument that pastors should be able to um, earn their, their keep from their, from their ministry, defending his right to do so, uh, look with me in verse 3. We're going to go down to verse 11, but he, he works this argument out this way. He says, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? So this Paul is saying, look, me and Barnabas, don't we have the right to eat and drink, to, to, to be able to provide for ourselves from the ministry? Don't we have a right, though Paul was not married, uh, as far as we know, don't we have a right to take our spouses with us on these missionary trips? By the way, the other apostles do, even, even Peter does, and, and they receive payment. 
Or is it only, verse 6, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruits? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? So he's saying, listen, this ain't just me talking. Let me, let me take you to the word now. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses. He's going to quote Deuteronomy. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And then he asks this question. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? Paul is saying that to read that and understand that well, it's like, yeah, you should feed your ox, but in the context, the oxen are a metaphor for those who are plowing in the word, who are working in the word, who have this right to receive their pay from the word. And so he calls on Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, but he also calls on Luke chapter 10, verse 7. He quotes there, Luke 10, verse 7, the laborer is worthy of their wages. This is a quote from Jesus. In Luke 10, Jesus is sending out his disciples two by two, telling them to go out to preach the gospel, to evangelize, to do miracles and all those good things. And he's telling them how to sort of engage with the people that he goes to. And part of what he says there is that the, the laborer is worthy of his wages. Now, what's striking is Paul quotes that as scripture. So just as an aside here, notice that at the time of the apostles, the only place where this, this quote appears is in Luke's gospel, Luke 10, verse 7. At the time of the apostles, the apostles were regarding the gospel of Luke as scripture. Just an aside. Okay. So the worker is worthy of their wages. So let me, let me just stop here because those reasons are pretty straightforward and ask us just a couple of questions to conclude. This whole couple of verses assumes what Paul says, what the Bible says in 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, that this vocation is a noble task. It assumes that it's a worthy calling. It's a worthy pursuit. So let me just make that assumption an explicit question for us. I want you to think individually for a moment. Do you think pastoral ministry is a worthy vocation? Now, let me push it a step further. Not worthy for somebody else. Do you think it's worthy of you, of your calling, of your gifting, of your resources, of your life? Or think about your family for a moment. Do your family members believe Christian ministry is a worthwhile full-time vocation? Well, maybe ask that specifically of college students, thinking about the career and future. Now, I, I know the Sunday school answer to this is yes, right? Yes. But the real-life answer for many people is no. Sometimes young people want to go to the mission field or they want to join the staff of their campus ministry, do campus ministry. But their Christian parents, their Christian parents are against it because they think their children can, quote, do better. Or they think to themselves, we didn't pay all that money for you to go into ministry. We paid that money for you to make money. They have different priorities, which means that their view of the ministry is that the ministry is fundamentally unworthy of their son or daughter. Sometimes men refuse to consider becoming elders because they are, quote, too busy at work or they don't want the headache or some other reason. And in that way, they are not thinking of the ministry as a noble task, right? I think all callings, all, all callings are worthy. All callings bring honor to God. I'm not one of those guys who thinks that the ministry's way up here and everybody else's vocation is down here. I don't believe that for a moment. But I do grow concerned with people who seem to put every other vocation up here and the ministry down here. 
And, and, that, and that can be seen, that evaluation can be seen just in their response to the idea of ministry, right? So let me, let me give you some examples. If, if part of your thinking is, you know what, I would, I would rather do X, Y, and Z, whatever X, Y, and Z are, however good they are, I don't even assume that they're sinful or bad. I would rather do X, Y, and Z than to reorganize my life to serve God and his people, I think that's cause to slow down and pray and to ask ourselves if we are valuing the ministry the way God does. Again, X, Y, Z can be good, can be great. And, and you may not feel any calling to the ministry. Okay, cool. You thought about it, you prayed about it, you go off and do something else. Every vocation glorifies God. But especially if the Lord is kind of tickling your ear just a little bit. Right, and, and he seems to just be drawing you to some act of service, whether it's pastoral ministry or the diaconate or just a volunteer leader of something, a volunteer servant in children's ministry. Every time the announcement goes out for children's ministry, you feel a sense of, I should do that. But then five minutes later after the service, you're like, but no, I'd rather do X, Y, Z. I think we need to pause and consider if we are valuing the ministry the way God does. Let me ask you this question. Is the ministry something that's valuable only to the extent that it can be fit into your life the way it already is? I mean, I think that means it's less valuable in your estimation than everything else you have going on. Well, I think it means we should at least pray about whether that's what's going on. Or is the ministry here valued by God as worthy of double honor, called a noble task, is it, is it valued by you to such an extent that you would gladly reorganize your life around it in part? Hear me clearly, not to the point that you are neglecting your wife, not to the point you're neglecting your kids, not to the point that you should be doing other things that the Bible actually makes a prerequisite to ministry. It's not what I'm saying. But there's a whole lot of other stuff that ain't prerequisites that could be done a different way or not done at all in order to make room for service to God. And the question is, are we even open to that? And if we're not open to that, does that tell us something about how we value what God values? Do you think it's worthy of your life? Do you think it's worthy of your time, your resources? Is what we do as a church in caring for each other, in the ministry of the word, in the power of the Holy Spirit, does it rank as vital to you? Or is this kind of an optional habit that you've been groomed into because you're a Christian? Someone said recently to me that they weren't growing and weren't getting anything from the ministry of the word in their church. And, and my response to them was, what's wrong with you? which surprised them because they thought they were telling me something about the ministry of the word. I, my question is, are you a Christian? Do you love God's word? Is the word being faithfully preached? Are other people there growing? Then let me ask you again, what's wrong with you? This is not about the, the preacher. It's not about the vessel. It's about the word, right? The spirit is alive and at work in his church. If we're not growing that there may be many reasons, right, as to why that's the case. And some of it may have to do with the ministry and the ministers themselves. But I think we should start with this notion that God has found the ministry of the word so important that he has made it central to the life of his church and the means by which we get life and grow, the means by which we are quickened and the ordinary way in which we grow so that if that ain't happening, we should start with, What's happening with my values?
what's happening with my perspective, what's happening with my heart, such that the things that God ordinarily uses to grow his people ain't happening with me. And then we can work out from there to thinking about the rest of the church as well. But that means we have to value very deeply what God values in terms of the ministry. We have to consider it worthy for those who serve well of double honor. Let me stop there. Any questions, comments, concerns? Praise the Lord, brother. All hearts and minds clear? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are not afraid to address us on topics that we may be afraid to talk about. We thank you that you're not afraid to address us on topics that we might even be disinterested in or, or resentful about or suspicious of. We thank you that you wrote these things 2,000 years before we were a thought in our parents' eyes and that you mean for these things across time and across cultures to be honored and to be obeyed and applied by your people. And we thank you that you have given us a sufficient Bible, that its teaching is enough for us to know how to live in a manner that's pleasing in your sight and to do the things that you require of us. So we pray that you would help us, O oh Lord, to to take in your word, to, to see its heart, to see its meaning, to see not just the letter of the word, but the spirit of the word as well. And that that would indeed humble us beneath the word, bring us into proper submission and subjection to you, bring us into a glad obedience to your word, because we know it's that through your word that you exercise your lordship in our lives. And so we pray, speak to us, give us ears to hear, lead us by your spirit and your word, we pray, and grant that we would continue by your grace to be faithful to it until the end. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.